The scripture lesson for the sermon this evening is the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So Paul has written this letter to the Romans, a church that he had not actually yet visited. And so uh, since he does not expect that they all have the same foundation of teaching that that uh, he gave to other churches, uh, he gives us a lot of basics of Christian faith in God's providence that has, has given us a great gift. That the church has this letter to the Romans to teach us many basics of Christian doctrine. And tonight we're going to read about justification in chapter 4 of Romans, not the only place we find it uh, in this letter. It's a major topic of the letter to the Romans, but uh, chapter 4 is a good place to speak of of the justification or to consider justification, that doctrine. And so we turn now to Romans chapter 4. This is the inspired word of God as the Lord gave to the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit superintended its writing, and so we know that it is without error. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. For he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because The law brings about wrath, for there is no law, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to 
what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless now the reading and the proclamation and the hearing of your word. Help us to grow in our love of you and in our righteous service, even as we learn the things that you have to teach us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are many things that could be said about justification, and we won't be, I won't be expositing this entire chapter. In fact, if I were going to give you an expository sermon on Romans 4, it would actually be several sermons. I would be breaking this chapter down quite a bit. And someday, Lord willing, we'll get to Romans, as I've been preaching through Paul's epistles off and on over the last several years. So when we get through First and Second Corinthians, sometime we'll be moving on to Romans. And this will be something that we can learn a lot from when that time comes. But certainly, uh, we see here a great deal about the doctrine of justification. There's a lot that can be said about justification. And uh, I'll be sticking mainly tonight to what is said in the Westminster Confession, since that's the point of this sermon series, uh, covering the topics that are covered in the Westminster Confession. The understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans about justification is really basic to Christian knowledge, uh, to our knowledge of who God is and to our relationship with Him. And it's so foundational that to lose it is really to lose the biblical faith. Uh, this is why men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon and Martin Bootser and, and many, many other of the great Protestant reformers willingly risked their lives to recover this doctrine of justification. Justification by God's grace alone, working through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. It's also one reason why every Christian must, in one sense, be an historian, as the old saying goes. Because we must never forget what these godly people did in the past, lest we forsake the true faith that they gave up so much for, and fall for the same lies that they were working so hard to overcome. That's why Peter Waldo and John Huss were killed in the Middle Ages. And why John Wycliffe was persecuted and why when he died of an illness on his way to trial, his body was dug up and burned by the authorities just to show how much contempt they had for the gospel he was preaching. That's why John Knox and countless others 
were imprisoned and enslaved and driven from their homes because they knew that Christianity stands or falls on the teaching that justification or standing as righteous before God as forgiven and reconciled sinners depends on God's grace alone working through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why Satan has brought so many false teachers, civil governments, and wicked church leaders to bear down so heavily on those who teach it. Last Sabbath evening we were studying the doctrine of effectual calling. And that's really where the Westminster Confession begins its statement on justification with the concept of effectual calling. So we talked Uh, Last time then about the fact that God has from before the foundations of the world elected a people for himself and then in time effectually calls each one of those people to himself. And picking up there, the confession says, those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins. So the notion of infused righteousness there was, was a, a doctrine taught by the medieval church and which was saying that, uh, that God simply injects some righteousness into us, so to speak, and then we enact that righteousness and are saved by it, by our own actions. For those whom God effectually calls, the confession says, he freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So in other words, it's not even that God gives us the gift of faith, though he does, that's part of the doctrine that we're living here, and then we save ourselves by using that faith. It's that we're saved by Christ and we're attached to him by the faith that God has given us. It's a fine line of difference there. Romans 8.30, those whom he, God, predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. So there's the effectual call and then justification, being made righteous. We are counted righteous, not because of any good deeds that we've done, but because Christ has been perfectly righteous in our place. He has purchased our pardon with his death after having lived a perfectly righteous life. And so we see, as we saw here in Romans 4, that there's this doctrine of imputation, that there's a great exchange that happens, whereby for those who are in Christ, your sins were laid on him when he went to the cross, and that perfect righteousness that he accomplished is laid upon you. You're given a bank account, as it were, that's full of Christ's righteousness. And something we'll learn later as we deal with with our ongoing sanctification is that 
when you go to withdraw from that bank, there's just as much in the account as there was the last time you took that you withdrew from it. Christ has an infinite righteousness, and it's applied to you if you are in Him. First Corinthians one thirty, Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As we read in Romans four five, as we saw tonight here. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Before that, Paul had said, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if I'm going to try to earn my way into heaven, if I could be that righteous, then it wouldn't be considered grace. If I made my way into heaven, it would be a debt that God owed me, so to speak. It would be an earned wage. But I can't earn enough wages, so to speak, to buy my way into heaven. There's not enough good deeds I could do to outweigh my basic sinfulness. But God has made a way whereby grace, by His free gift, I can be in His heavenly presence. So to Him who does not work but believes on Him who justifies, it's through faith, right? His faith is accounted for righteousness. In the previous chapter of Romans 3, 23 and 24, we see this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But those who are justified, therefore, are not justified by their perfect righteousness, which they would need. It would need to be perfect righteousness to be in God's presence. But they are justified. They're justified by God's grace, by a free gift in Christ Jesus. And that's key, as the confession says. It's not just some kind of vague faith in God. It's a faith in God's promises fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the same promises that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we put our trust really in Christ himself, who is God and who fulfills those promises. And it's him who accomplished it. So it's a redemption that is in Christ Jesus and only in him. And we receive that imputed righteousness, we lay hold of that salvation by faith alone. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, Christ, he's talking about there, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You have a right to be a a child of God, an heir, a co-heir with Christ to the kingdom, if you have faith in Christ. Acts 10.43, to him, again Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Of course, we see there implied also that there's no one else that you can have faith in, not yourself, not some other religious leader, whereby you could be justified only by Christ. In Philippians 3.9, Paul speaks of his not having a righteousness of my own, he says, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
So again, it's not our righteousness. It's a righteousness that's foreign to us. It's like we sang earlier, like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion, whereby God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. It comes from outside and it's imputed to us. It's a righteousness from God that depends on not our works, but on faith. We cling to Christ by faith. As some teachers have said, that faith is the hooks whereby we, we grapple on to Christ. Or to use a more modern analogy, we might say it's the Velcro. Right? If you've ever looked at Velcro under a microscope or under great magnification, you see it's tiny little hooks that hook onto the fabric on the other side. It's these things that make us cling to Christ. Faith is what sticks us to Christ. And it's the only instrument, as we'll see here in a bit, whereby we can cling to Christ. But only Christ is the one whereby we can be justified. Lest we think the faith that we have is our own doing, and we we somehow well it up from within ourselves, and by my own faith, then I'll stick myself to Jesus. No, Ephesians 2.8 tells us, By grace you have been saved, through faith, and this... Your faith is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. As I've said before, if so, as some would argue, uh, Paul's actually talking about the grace being the gift of God. Well, that would be like saying, you know, what are you getting for Christmas? Well, presents? Well, what specifically? Gifts? Well, yes, we're talking about two words that mean the same thing. So Paul would be making a nonsensical or actually a too obvious statement, if that's what he was saying. But the faith is included in what he says there is the gift of God, and that's clear in the Greek grammar. Your faith is a gift from God. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Of course, Paul's point in that in that verse there is to tell people that even your suffering is something that is good, ultimately, for God's purposes. But he's presuming in that verse that you understand that your belief, your faith, was also given to you, granted to you by God. The very faith that we have is a gift from God. Well, let's put that together with what we've learned in previous weeks. God elects a people for himself from before the foundation of the world. We have fallen from our original state, and our nature, therefore, since the fall, is to be hostile to God. The Holy Spirit, however, takes people who would, in their own will, flee from God and changes their wills, renews our wills, so that we're born again, born from above, regenerated, we're a new creation, we see God for who he really is, and we run to him and not away from him. So we run to the God who has chosen us. So we're not dragged kicking and screaming into his kingdom, but we come willingly. Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death in our place. We are imputed his righteousness for the sake of the faith the Holy Spirit created in in our hearts when he brought us to new life. That's really the the sum total thus far of the things we've learned here. The confession goes on. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. We would say the only instrument of justification now. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, 
but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith but worketh by love. So we'll see more on this in the future, but what the confession there is saying is that it's, faith is the only instrument whereby you can cling to Christ and be saved by him. It's this gift that God gives you and that sticks you to Jesus. But it's not a gift that comes by itself. And the only way that you know that you have that saving faith that has stuck you to Jesus is if you see those other gifts in your life as well. As the old saying goes, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That is, in other words, it's going to produce good works, works of godliness in the saved person. Ephesians 2.10, after Paul 2 verses before that, saying that we're saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, is the gift of God. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saves us, in part, that we might do the good works that we ought already to have been doing. The confession then says, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt, of all those that are justified and did make a good make a proper real and full satisfaction of his father's justice in their behalf yet inasmuch as he was given by the father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely not for anything in them their justification is only of free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of god might be glorified in the justification of sinners A way of saying that Christ paid the debt that we owe God for our sins and that he did this so that God's justice would be satisfied as well as his love for his people. And that God is glorified in both sides of that. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans 9. How God is glorified by punishing sin and by loving the sinner at the same time. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Romans 5.8, God showed his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Next, the confession points out, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, So there's, as we saw, the elect from all eternity. We've seen that before. And so God decreed as part of his decree to save the elect, to justify them, to make them, or to count them righteous in his sight. When we get to sanctification, we'll talk about how he makes us truly righteous over time. But he decreed to justify, to count as righteous all his elect. And then... In time, this is what happened, the confession says, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. That was the last verse we read in Romans 4. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification, or raised for our justification. We could read it that way. So again, the confession, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So we see uh, outside of time, in eternity, 
God decreed the justification of the elect. In time, Jesus died for them. And then, particularly in the life of every elect person, there will come a moment, sometime in their life, when the Holy Spirit applies that justification to them at the same time as their new birth. And they are counted as righteous in Christ. Justification is a forensic declaration, as as, uh, theologians will say. Forensic just having to do with legal matters, right? If you get into forensic psychology, that's psychology dealing with crimes, that kind of thing, right? Forensic analysis, analyzing crime scenes. Justification is a forensic declaration. So it's a decree from God's criminal court. We are criminals in God's sight. And yet here in God's courtroom, he decrees not guilty. It's not a sovereign decree that makes us instantly righteous in every area of our life, but it's his decree that we will be counted as righteous. It's the verdict that the judge will not hold us as guilty because the debt has already been paid. The confession says God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. So there's this forensic declaration and then this continual forgiveness of ongoing sin. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. So, in other words, the confession is rightly saying, you will never lose your salvation, but God, now having adopted you as his child, might occasionally give you a spanking. Because of your sins, God might need to correct you and point you in the right direction. Sometimes it's gentle correction, like you ever uh, see a maybe a mom with a, a toddler walking through Walmart or something, and she just touches the back of his head and gently steers him in a different direction from the way he was going. And sometimes it's, it has to be harder correction, but the confession rightly says here, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet... They may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Think of Jesus telling Peter he would deny him three times. Peter saying, no way will I do that. And then stumbling in that sin that he so vociferously claimed he would not stumble in And eventually his response was remorse, repentance, and he was restored. And God does that for all his children, correcting them. He chastens us when we give ourselves over to sin. He may have us taste the consequences of that sin in this life. He restores us when we repent, even though sometimes the sin will have earthly consequences that are ongoing. We think of King David and his grievous sin with Bathsheba and how he repented and was restored, but he endured some ongoing consequences for that sin. Some chaos in his family came about because of it. In fact, even Bathsheba's grandfather supported Absalom in his rebellion against King David because of his offense probably at what had gone on there. Well, that brings us to our last point for this evening from the confession as we've seen before. Old Testament saints 
are saved just the same way that you and I are by God's grace alone, working through faith alone in Christ alone. They wouldn't have known the person, but they knew the promise of God that he was coming. And so the confession rightly says the justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. That's why Paul spends so much time there in uh, Romans 4 referring to Genesis 15. We see in Genesis 15 we're told after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed one born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven." And count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abram believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. That's why Paul makes such a big deal of pointing that out in Romans chapter 4. And says that, Verse 19, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, saying figuratively, it's, it's as if he were dead, certainly unable to father a child by the time he was nearly a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, 90 years old, and had never been able to conceive a child to that point. If Abram were thinking only naturally, what would he expect? Well, there's no way we're going to have children. God said, no, you're not going to have to choose an heir from some of the servants born in your household, but you will have as an heir a child from your own body. Abram believed him. Because God said so, it was so. And that faith was accounted to him as the righteousness that he lacked, that perfect righteousness he needed to be in the presence of his holy creator. And the same is true for you and I, faith is accounted as the righteousness that we lack. We are therefore justified not by works, but by faith. That's the distinctive mark of true Christianity. Going hand in hand with our understanding of the Trinity and the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ, who alone can accomplish our justification, because without Christ, the God-man, there is no perfect mediator. We would be left then to try to fulfill righteousness ourselves, and that's a futile effort to, uh, to overcome our own sins by our own attempts at righteousness. God accounts as righteous all who trust in Jesus Christ. You may receive that, or you may have noticed, I should say, that any religion in the world, except for biblical Christianity, including false and corrupted Christianities, might be boiled down to the word do. There's a list of things that you have to do to get to your goal, to heaven or to nirvana, to oneness with God, whatever the goal you think you're, you're working toward is. There's a list of things you do. How am I righteous in God's eyes? Do. How can I get to heaven? Do this. The five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism, the 
sacrificial systems of many pagan religions, even modern Hinduism and the works righteousness of Mormonism and other false churches. Every man-made religion says, do, do, do. But biblical Christianity says, done. It is finished, Jesus said from the cross. Christ accomplished everything. I don't have to seek reconciliation with God. I am reconciled. I don't earn forgiveness. I'm forgiven. I don't pay my way to heaven. It's paid. I don't find my way into the kingdom of God. I am already in it. Yes, there are things I do now in response to that. We'll get to those things later. But this is the religion of done. We're not justified by our own meager attempts to be good, but by the perfect life of him who alone is God and man. There was an old hymn that rightly says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Psalm 4.1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. My righteousness came from you. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Lord God, the just and the justifier of all who trust in Jesus, we do believe in you. We pray that you would build us up in that faith, that being justified we may show how much we love the God who has saved us by the works that we do in response through Jesus Christ. Amen.